Um, our next session um, on uh, division, and the divisions we uh, recognize and uh, face, is going to be with Lindsay Hanley, who's author of Estates and Respectable, visiting fellow in cultural studies at Liverpool John Moores University, and Helen Pearson, award-winning journalist and editor for Nature and author of the wonderful The Life Project. Helen and Lindsay. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I was going to ask you both just to give a, to launch straight into this, just by giving <laughs> a brief, if you would, um, summary of your, it's tricky this, because we're, a summary of your positions on something we haven't declared yet, what we're going to be talking about exactly, but perhaps to talk about the life project and then talk a bit about um, class and see where those meet, mm -hmm. if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so... My book, The Life Project, is about this remarkable series of studies which have tracked um, thousands of children growing up in Britain over the last uh, 70 years and what that's really taught us about why we walk different paths in life, so why some people are successful on some level and some people struggle much more. And um, the story really starts back in March 1946 when scientists did something really remarkable which was um, record, and start to uh, record the birth of, of every baby uh, that was born in, in Britain in one week. Um, and they've been following thousands of them ever since and um, collecting reams of information on their, their health and their, their income and, and much, much more about their lives. And that's become something very special. Um, it's become the longest-running major study of human development in the world now. And it was so successful that scientists went on and did it again. So they recorded uh, the births of thousands of children born in 1958 and then again 1970, again in the early 1990s and again at the turn of the millennium. And altogether now, um, over 70,000 and people have been enrolled in these, these five studies across those generations. And um, they've just collected reams and reams of information on, on, on health and, as I said, income and, and jobs, almost everything you can possibly think of, terabytes worth of computer data, questionnaires, uh, many, many biological samples as well. And um, the results from these studies have just been incredibly prolific and have fed into all kinds of policies around Britain, um, around pregnancy, um, birth, schooling, uh, social mobility, adult education, and much, much more. Some people call them now um, a jewel in the crown of British science, although, as I discovered, as I reported this in my book, that many, many people actually have never heard of these studies before. So really, the, the goal of this book was to bring out and, and tell everyone about these incredible studies which have been going on in Britain. Um, and of course, now I've written it, um, I meet people who are in these studies all the time too. Um, it's very hard for the book to, to find people to kind of uh, talk to me about um, being in these studies, because of course, their identities is confidential. Um, but now I meet them all the time. Maybe there's some in the audience. <laughs> so that's a potted summary of the book. Thank you. Lindsay. Right. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I've just uh, written a book um, called Respectable, The Experience of Class, um, which, um, as I was saying to Helen just before, it took an awful long time to write. It took about eight or nine years to write, during which I kind of figured that the class system wasn't going to go away in eight or nine years, so I may as well take my time. <laughs> so, um, I mean, really, that's kind of the way I view uh, class, really, as being something um, tectonic, really. Uh, as a tectonic situation in society that's incredibly, um, you know, the overarching structure is quite static and extremely slow moving and individual governments and individual policies can make huge amounts of difference within, within specific cohorts who are growing up under those governments uh, without necessarily sort of 
affecting or, or you know, demolishing really the, 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 the broad overarching hierarchical structure of class. And, and my sort of my main, um, the, the person I went to, you know, for, 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 for reference and guidance uh, in writing this book all the way through was the writer Richard Hoggart, who wrote The Uses of Literacy in 1957. And he was talking about his childhood in, in Leeds, in, in, the, in the back streets of Leeds in the 1930s. You know, and I grew up outside Birmingham in the 1980s and 1990s, and there was sort of two generations, or two or three generations and 60 years separating our experiences, and there was a huge amount of similarity. And that's where I sort of started to really understand his um, assertion that, 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 that he made in, in the late 80s, that, that, that every decade, every decade we declare the coffin of class empty and every decade the coffin stays open. Um, and also he said that class distinctions don't die, they just find new ways of expressing themselves. And I think that's the experience, you know, I'm 40 now and uh, that, that's the experience that I've sort of had of notice throughout my life is that sort of, um, you know, uh, policy can change and, you know, can be influenced, you know, ev proper evidence-based policy making, you know, as in based on the evidence of the cohort studies can tell us an awful lot about what, about what can be done to change people's lives within that structure. But in terms of actually, Thank but you. in terms of actually sort of uh, getting rid of the structure altogether, that's, that's the hardest nut to crack. Thank you. I just, um, Helen, I wondered if you could say, so the cohorts were, um, 58, 40, 58, 70, 46, 58, so every 12 years. Mm -hmm. But then there was a, in 82, there wasn't a cohort, yeah. was there? Can you say a bit about what happened there and why that cohort didn't come to fruition? Right, yeah, that was the mysterious uh, missing cohort. So you're right, they, they started um, every 12 years, somewhat accidentally, I have to say. Um, but uh, there was a thought to have one in the 1980s because the power of these studies, of course, is that you can compare the generations, mm -hmm, yeah. and that's why it's really powerful and Britain's unique in, in having these. Um, there, there were very big plans um, to, to have a, a cohort um, in the 1980s, and uh, there were probably two things that, that killed it, I think. Um, one was just that the sort of... Um, the scale of the ambition became too big, so... Um, each one had enrolled thousands of, of children, um, and, and it was working, but they were all sort of, as you can imagine, held together on a shoestring and always a, a step away from collapse because it was never clear, really, whether there was going to be the um, political and financial to support to keep these things going. So you're always pleading with, with government departments, uh, departments and funders to, you know, to keep them going. And um, the, the plans for the 1982 one were just too big. I mean, it was really to enroll, um, I think it was um, every mother, pregnant mother, um, across maybe uh, six months or a year, which just grew to be hundreds of thousands, and it was just, just too big. But also, um, crucially, all of the other cohort studies were running into a very difficult time because the planning was in the 1970s, um, and there was this kind of key point in 1979, just as Margaret Thatcher was coming into power, um, the, the political winds were not blowing in the right direction uh, to support these studies. And, and so I think that that was crucial too, and you can see this in the kind of life uh, cycle of, of these studies, is that they sort of blow in and out of, of favour, because ultimately, um, it's not very politically uh, palatable to, um, to, to start a study which is going to show, as all of these have, that children who are born into disadvantage tend to follow more difficult lives, because I've probably cut to the chase here, but that's ultimately what they tend to show. Mm -hmm. um, 
And interestingly, I'm sorry, I'm going off the topic a, a little bit, but there was the missing cohort of 1980, but this happened again. So you see this all the way through these, these studies as the history tends to repeat itself. Um, and there was a, a, a very, very ambitious uh, cohort study that was actually started in 2015, and it was going to enroll, uh, enroll 80,000 children born into the modern world and hopefully tell us something about society today. Um, it started uh, enrolling pregnant women in January 2015, um, and it was closed in October. Um, which was extremely disappointing, of course, to the scientists who'd already sunk years of their lives into this. And um, again, I think that, that the, two thing, the two factors happened again. Um, so the, perhaps the, the scale of the ambition became too much, it became very expensive, it's very complicated, people are very concerned about privacy, uh, but also there's a suggestion, really, that there was a, um, a, a loss of support at, at a very high level uh, for studies like this, so real, sh real shame. Perhaps before we come on to talk about what the um, studies actually show, things which sometimes seem obvious to us now in hindsight, in, in terms of health, but also social divide, you used that phrase early on, social mobility, and Lindsay, I just wondered if you could comment on this, because I, I, from, from reading your work, you, you've commented on this being both the prop seen often as both the problem and the solution, mm -hmm. yet it's problematic. Yeah. As a yeah. phrase, even, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the, you know, sort of from a sort of, you know, disseminated from, you know, outwards from government is the idea that, that, that social mobility is a problem because there's not enough of it. And if only there were more social mobility, we could essentially... Could you define it as a term? Social mobility, well, yeah, social mobility is always, always described as, as uh, is always, always meant uh, suggested to mean uh, upwards mobility from working class into middle class, right. essentially, or at the very least economic mobility, but preferably social mobility because... So the averages move up. Is that the sense? Is that uh, well, no, no, it's just, it's just uh, that it's, it's very, again, politically unpalatable to suggest that people might be downwardly mobile. Mm. Um, and it's only really acceptable from a sort of, you know, going from undeserving to deserving mm. and from, un you know, disrespectable to respectable, uh, going, going upwards mm. in class, you know, as though there's something inherently wrong with being working class mm. and not just the circumstances in which you find yourself mm. if you're working class. Mm. And, but you talk about the, 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 this concept of the ladder of social mobility, but talk very articulately in the book about what isn't talked about, i.e. the walls of that um, mm -hmm. entity. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, social mobility, you know, is spoken of as being a ladder, you know, which has to go upwards. And if you start on the bottom, then the only way, then the only way is up. And the further you go up it, the more you will be accepted and the more you will be sort of valorised in society. And also held up as an exemplar of, oh, you know, oh, class barriers don't mean that much. If you, if you can rise, then so can the next person and, and so on. But, but the walls are the things that, 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 I, that I sort of talk about in, in my previous book as well, about council estates, um, which is about internalisation. It's about the way we internalise all the, um, you know, messages we receive about our status, and the, the ideas that we take in about where we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to go, and uh, you know what what we're sort of. Uh, sort of deemed to, you know, what are deemed to be the, the right things to do for people like us and what aren't for people like us and so on. And, and this sort of the, the, the psychological and the emotional costs of if you sort of step out, you know, if you make an attempt to or if you manage to kind of step outside of those boxes. So is, is, your, is it, are you saying almost, is the contention that 
almost social mobility is handed out as a kind of panacea, the concept even of it, as a panacea. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as we get mobility, all yeah. ills will be fixed. But you're almost saying, actually, look, the idea of class, you know, it, there's nothing implicitly wrong, indeed, with the notion of working class. It's the, it's the context within which people find themselves and the walls that close around them that yeah. restrict freedoms and, you know, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just say a bit, then, about um, the the walls, if you would, before we come on to the, the health, the actual health disparities, the internal paradigms that differ, that you've talked about a lot in here, between working class and middle class society? Uh, oh, <laughs> we talk about abstract uh, learning over, over, you know, abstract learning over right. affirmations of shared experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Different language. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, in the book, I do try and sort of dissect, you know, what it is that I'm trying to mm. sort of talk about. Mm. I mean, the, the book is partly a, a personal account of my own experience of social mm. mobility mm. and why that was psychologically and emotionally and practically very problematic. Uh, for me and continues to an extent to, to, to still be problematic and uh, so much of that is to do with um, you know I was raised in, in, a, in a single in a single class environment and educated completely in a single class environment that, that class being a working class environment and uh, expectations and assumptions that, that, that were made both on behalf of us and that we took inside ourselves and expressed outwards, you know, in terms of our expectations for ourselves and, 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 uh, and, and our peers and, and so on, uh, were, were quite fixed. Uh, and uh, it, was based on a sen it was based on a sense that we were kind of desperate to get at, you know, we were, we were on a peripheral estate, we were on a pr very large peripheral estate outside Birmingham, nine miles away from the, 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 the city centre. Our primary school and our secondary school was all on the estate, so it was a very sort of closed <laughs> experience. <laughs> and we had a sense that we were desperate to go out and get out and live a nicer life. <laughs> but what that actually meant and what that actually entailed, we had absolutely no idea meant. And, and, and to us, the only thing that we could sort of envisage was a form of economic mobility. <laughs> how would we get to make more money? <laughs> we didn't know how we were going to do that. I sort of fixated, you know, I was, I was quite a sort of solitary, you know, I was quite a sort of solitary child and, uh, and I, I got really, really fixated on education and that happens to be very lucky, mm. you know, in, in a society that, 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 that you know, that valorises and validates, you know, the educational route. Mm. Um, I became quite obsessed with education, you know, I became obsessed with reading and, and so on and all these things are very handy, you know, as, as also the, the birth cohort study also shows, you know, in, in, in a society that, that, that sort of, places an almost excessive uh, value on, you know, on, on, on articulacy and, 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 and literacy and, uh, you know, kind of gaming the system through your ability to articulate yourself, you know. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I was really, um, you know, kind of alone in this uh, sort of experience at school, uh, but, but I sort of kept my head down and kept fixated on it because I thought this is the thing that's going to get me out. Mm. So, you know, this had all sorts of implications in terms of solidarity, you know, the sort of the unspoken class solidarity. You know, we weren't all sitting there going, oh, we're working class. You know, it yeah. was kind of, you know, this is, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. And we're always doing the thing that you weren't supposed to do. You know, which is take things seriously, you know, be sort of quite sort of questing in ideas, get on well with the teachers, yeah. all those sorts of things. Um, you know, and this all got me to a sixth form college on the other side of town. You know, I come from North Solihull, which is a very, which is very sort of geographically separated from the affluent part of Solihull. 
um, you know, all the estates are in the north, and then you've got the motorway and the airport, and then you've got South Solihull on the other side, and I got to the sixth form college on the other side. And, um, you know, it, 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 it was kind of a bus trip and a world away, you know. And, and when I got to Sixth Form College, I thought, oh, this is great. This is just where all the SWATs go. I've gone to the, I've got to the place where all the SWATs go. This is great. And then it very quite quickly dawned on me that all the other kids that were there, they weren't there because they were SWATs. They were there because they were middle class. <laughs> and I, it took a while to sink in what the implications and what the realities of, of, of this were. But it, it had entirely to do with expectations, assumptions, uh, simply having grown up in a milieu of um, conversation, debate, abstract knowledge, not taking somebody's lights out if you disagree with them, you know, that, that sort of thing. And just, just say a bit more about abstract knowledge. When you, what do you mean by that when you say growing up in an environment? Well, this is the thing knowledge. you say. I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to describe, but, but, but when I was researching the book, I came across the work of Basil Bernstein, the sociolinguist who worked at the Institute of Education in the, in the, the, from the 50s to the 70s. And um, he, sort of, he, he sort of codified working class and middle class speech, really, by you know, listening to it very, very carefully mm. and analysing it. And he kind of worked out that working class speech and working class relationships through speech are entirely sort of... They're, 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 present, they're present tense. They're very contingent. They're based on what's happening now. They're based on the direct relationship you've got with the person that you're talking to. Has a, a, an aspect of, um, yeah, like, like I say, not, not necessarily fatalism, but, but of sort of contingency about it. You know, we're going to talk about what's happening now because it could all change tomorrow. <laughs> Whereas when I went to sixth form college, you know, at, at school we hadn't been taught verbal reasoning. You know, we hadn't been taught abstract verbal reasoning. I think our teachers would have liked to have done that, but were so focused on more sort of basic things that they sort of didn't think that we could, you know. I think, I think sort of at the back of their minds didn't think that we could handle it, but at the front of their minds it was kind of like, okay, how, how do we all survive in this situation, basically? But, but, but get, 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 getting to, to sixth form, it was... I realised that, 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 you know, what Basil... Bernstein was talking about in terms of the informal code and the formal code. Mm. The formal code, I do in middle class speech, places the individual and the in, an individual's experience in a kind of universal and a universalized context mm. and says, you know, these are the facts, mm. this is reality, my place in the world is extremely secure, mm. um, I can make declarations and they will stand, they will stand today, they will stand tomorrow, they will stand in a hundred mm. years time. Mm. You know, uh, you know, I am the beacon of, you know, I am the beacon of rationalist thought, you know, <laughs> and whether or not that's actually the case, you give the impression that, that, that that's what it is. And, and, it, and it's about ideas, it's about the elevation of ideas. And of course, if you've gone from, if you come from an environment where you're kind of desperate to talk about ideas you've had in your head, and you're just desperate to talk about these things. This is the most exciting thing in the world, you know, to be able to talk about things beyond, you know, things beyond the absolute immediate. It's absolutely fantastic. But of course, it had a very head mangling effect, yep. realizing just how different these forms of language use they were and the, what the implications they had in terms of power. Yeah. And you describe it brilliantly. Privilege is invisible and weightless, mm -hmm. largely characterised by winging it with style. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Before. Yeah. Helen, yeah. Can, you, can we come in on this in terms of what the cohorts tell us about education over that period, particularly in the current um, establishment's views on grammar schools? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's so good to be on the stage with you because there's, there's just so much overlap with the kind of ideas that we've um, encountered. Um, I mean, I, just, just specifically to talk perhaps about some of the issues that Lindsay's um, raising. Um, so what, what the cohorts have, have generally shown and that I encountered again and again in, in um, reporting on them for, for the book was, as I said, that, that children who are born into more difficult circumstances tend to follow more difficult life trajectories, and that can mean um, suffering poorer health over time um, or struggling more in the education system or not necessarily landing up with the best incomes or the best jobs. And that there's one specific study which kind of really relates well, actually, to, to what you're, you're talking about. Because um, it wasn't, it's, obviously, that's not an absolute. I mean, many, many people, you know, escape the boundaries of class and, and, and uh, manage to, to better themselves in some way. Um, so often there's a very optimistic message, actually, from these studies as well. But there was one in particular um, which looked at uh, children who were born into that cohort, um, born in 1958. And um, scient what scientists did was identify the children who were really born into the most difficult circumstances of all. So they kind of had everything stacked against them. Um, they had low incomes. Um, they were in cramped homes with maybe uh, you know, five people in a bedroom. They had no uh, running hot water. They had family problems. Um, perhaps a, a, a father out of work or, or one parent at home. And as they followed those children through life, they could see that, uh, see very quickly within a few years that these children were starting to follow these more difficult life trajectories. Um, so, you know, more likely to suffer poor health and, and be, be struggling at school and so on. Um, but what they did then, I think, is something quite clever, is that they flipped the question around and said, OK, in fact, there, there was a, this book published called Born to Fail, which anyone who went, went through, OK, you probably encountered it, it was, ended up being this sort of best-selling paperback um, published in 1973. So it really kind of profound title that these children were born to fail. Um, but what they did then was they flipped it around and said, OK, well, we think these children are born to fail, but who doesn't fail? Um, who, who escapes? And um, what they did was followed up the children who were born into the difficult circumstances, but then actually went on to do well in life. And in their 20s, they found the ones who had um, got particularly good educational qualifications or had done well enough to buy their own house, um, or um, secured a particularly um, good, good job or, or income. And they went out and interviewed those people to kind of find out you know, what was the, the secret to success, if you like. And, um, and there was a really interesting book published in the 1990s called Escape from Disadvantage, which kind of tried to boil this down into what the key factors were. Um, and it was sort of more or less came down to four key things. So the first was uh, parents. So having um, ambitious, engaged parents behind uh, children who, who really you know, wanted them to, do, to, to better themselves, those children were more likely to escape that difficult start. Um, the second was schools. So having an ambitious, engaged school behind the child seemed to really help as well. Um, the third was location, so it was very difficult uh, for children who were born into disadvantage to escape from disadvantage if they weren't in an in a area, and this kind of relates to what you were talking about a bit, where there were no jobs. Um, you know, you needed to have jobs around you in order to escape. And then the fourth was motivation, so children who were motivated to escape from that difficult start were more likely to. But interestingly, motivation on its own didn't seem to be enough, so you needed to have some of this other constellation of, of, of factors around you. So, you know, that's one study something these cohorts teach you is you never just rely on one study, right? But um, uh, the, the themes of it, I think, have been repeated many, many times in later ones, and particularly that, um, that whole kind of theme around the importance of, of parenting and, and home life in the early years is something which, which has come through again and again in terms of, uh, you know, partly enabling children to overcome some of those early disadvantages. Was that, and does that, um, does that data 
speak to your own sense of the reality or does it feel as if it's a representing part of it? Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of not rocket science, is it? You know what I mean? It really, really isn't rocket science, but, <laughs> but I find it curious that um, it, it's, it's, it's really obvious that, that motivated parents help you, but, but, but has there been much analysis of the fact that if you're in really, really difficult circumstances, it, it's almost impossible to kind of summon up the energy at mm. the end of the day and to not be depressed also. Yeah. To not be depressed, to not have ill health, to not be basically quite crushed by your circumstances, to continue to right. be that... Um, you might be internally, obviously, invested and motivated by your children's success, but you might be so crushed by your circumstances that you simply can't... No, I, I think there's, a, got there's, the there's a complete acknowledgement of that. So, so right, the danger yeah. is to say, which some politicians might like to do, yeah. well, if only parents exactly, were really yeah. motivated yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, like, said, you know, oh, we really want to do the best for our children, then, you know, what would be Everybody the problem? Class would go away. But interestingly, in the Millennium Cohort, so the, the one that was born... Was it, present, was it almost presented in that way? Well, it has been presented that, that way. That's the danger of this kind of parenting literature, is it? Like, well, if you're all just better parents, then what are you whinging about, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of scientists will say, hold on a minute, you know, it's, um, it's not just parenting, poverty matters too. So that's speaking to what you're talking about. And interestingly, when they did a survey um, of, the, of the parents of children who were born in the Millennium Cohort, they found that all of them were ambitious for their children's futures. So, you know, yeah. clearly... So yeah, it, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so that might have been a factor which was really, you know, you're able to identify back in 1958, but perhaps that doesn't work nowadays. Mm. And the interesting mm. thing is that the data on grammar schools that similarly bright working class or middle class children, yeah. the, the, the likelihood of uh, obtaining a grammar school place was wildly different. Yeah, there was a really important um, study which came out of the, of the first cohort um, which basically showed that the 11 plus uh, system wasn't actually working properly. So the whole point of the 11 plus was that it was going to remove some of these inequalities in the education system and make sure that you know, all bright children could get onto the elite grammar schools uh, regardless of, of, of their background. And um, what the, the cohort study was able to do, because it had these independent measures of, um, of intellectual um, ability, basically, and it showed that um, bright children from the working classes were less likely to pass the 11 plus and go into grammar school than equally bright children from the, from the middle um, and, and upper classes. Um, so, so and, and, and as a result of that, actually, I mean, that was part of the reason that, that um, later on the Labour government um, moved away from grammar schooling mm -hmm. uh, towards the comprehensive system, although obviously we've got a, a bit of a, a patchwork today. Mm -hmm. So, um, so these, these cohorts have been very powerful in, 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 in revealing, I mean, I, in the book I called it, um, sometimes it's like holding up a mirror to Britain and, and showing us what we're really like, and sometimes we don't like what we see because it, it really shows <laughs> us that these, these systems aren't working or that there are these divides in society. Mm -hmm. So the evidence shows divides in society and grammar schools that don't work. And well, I mean, yeah. right, and so talking about are. history repeating itself, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of literature, and, and these also, these, these studies um, have, sh have uh, looked at children who went through, um, had sort of e everything else equal about them, tried to control for the confounders, and look for children who went through the comprehensive schooling system and the grammar schooling system um, as, as comprehensives were coming in, and tried to kind of sort out this really difficult question as like, well, which is best, um, you know? 
And, um, and many, many of these studies, uh, they just can't find that much between them. No. Um, and, you know, of course, this is completely live again today um, with Theresa May wanting to, you know, to bring back grammar schools with many of the scientists saying, hold on, we've got this whole literature showing there's really not much. You know, so it's pointless. completely about ideology. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just speak yeah. to that a bit then in terms of the, our response to this. Uh, our response to what you're talking about, the data that's clear, but our response as a society towards the fact of social divides, not just being maintained, but widening. Yeah, mm -hmm. We see that, we know that. The responses um, appear to be, well, largely glib or you know, tokenistic mm. in the language of social mobility. Does anyone want to come in on what kinds of responses we've seen to that knowledge, or is there, none, you know, <laughs> is there nothing to talk about on that front? Well, I will, as long as I'm yeah. not talking too much. But I mean, I think that that's... Um, what's, what's changed is, is the appetite for change. So, so these cohorts, for example, um, revealed that the 11 plus wasn't working, but there was appetite for change, and the comprehensive system came in. And then to go right back to the very first finding, actually, which emerged from this cohort uh, born in 1946, because one of the shocking things that it showed, it was all about maternity, um, it, it showed that working-class women were giving birth in, in much worse circumstances than um, those in the middle and upper classes, and their children were far more likely to be born dead or with some um, terrible deformity, which might sound really obvious uh, now, but it wasn't at all obvious then. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually had a, a, a huge impact uh, because it emerged at the right time. Um, because it was just as the NHS was being put together, and um, this book called Maternity in Great Britain, which was being brandished by politicians at the time, was able to, to feed into the foundations of the NHS, which obviously, when it emerged in 1948, um, made the care around uh, pregnancy and maternity and birth um, free for everybody, and also around those uh, time as part of the welfare reforms, um, more generous benefits were brought in for, um, for pregnant women. So. Um, I think that it really helped, uh, you know, lay the foundations for actually the um, the benefits and, and care that uh, that women and, and dads uh, re receive today. Um, so there was a big appetite, you see, at that, uh, that stage to act on those results. So we still have studies coming out today that show that that um, you know uh, that that reveal those um, health divides, right? But perhaps the appetite to do anything about them is is not there. Tailed off, yeah. And something about, Lindsay, about the societal response to it, and the media particularly, in, coming back to the point you made earlier on, as good parenting being, you know, touted as the panacea, it's easy, mm. just, get, just be better parents, all mm. will be well. Mm. So the societal response and the prejudice that underlies some of the media reporting, for instance, around Baby P and mm. Shannon Matthews, do you, do you want to say a bit about that? There's a, almost a failure of impetus to understand so much as yeah. just to label and criticise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, it's easy. It's incredibly easy to, it's incredibly easy to just write people off mm. than to actually really, really think about it mm. and think about, think about the complexity. I mean, this is the whole situation that we're faced mm. across the world, isn't it? Mm. It's just an absolute failure and an inability and a lack of desire to think about complexity. Mm. And, you know, uh, the thing about what I said before about class being tectonic, mm is it kind of is, you know, you can still look at it, you can still look broadly at a sort of, you know, working class, middle class, uh, you know, sort of upper middle class uh, sort of sort of structure. But as, um, you know, Mike Savage and the, the researchers at the LSE and Manchester University who came up with the, the Great British Class Survey, mm. you know, were actually able to sort of break that down more to kind of more like sort of seven 
broad and overlapping uh, classes that recognised more about the complexity of, of, of how we experience, of how we experience class. And, and so much of that has got to do with, so much of that has got to do with internalisation of political messages, I think. And, you know, in the 70s, in the 70s, we were moving towards a more equal society. You know, all the benefits of the, all the benefits of the tw previous 25 years of the welfare state had actually begun to coalesce. You know, as the 1958 cohort, to, and to a lesser extent, the 1970 cohort shows, you know, it was a much more health, a much more healthy, much more sort of less constrained by class uh, generation than, than, the, than the 46 uh, Generation and by the 70s, we were actually starting to move towards a much more sort of um, economically. So, what's changed there? Because you both identified society. that, you both identified interventions. What's changed in the last? Well, now, well, that years? was where I was about to go yeah. on to say, which is that, that in the 70s, you know, you still had you still had a sort of newspaper rhetoric of, yeah, right. you know, scroungers and cheats mm. and you know, sort of uh, you know, feral children and 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 whatnots. Uh, but what happened sort of from the onset of the 1980s, and to me what's really problematic, continued under the Labour government from 1997 to, to 2010 and offset so much of the good stuff that it actually did, was the continuation and the deepening of a rhetoric of mar active marginalisation <laughs> of poorer people. As, po as poorer people, you know, sort of people living in sort of a sort of absolute poverty and real difficulty, as they became sort of a, a smaller group within society, as more people became economically mobile and got better off and got closer to the middle class economically, if not socially, it was just easier to sort of rump off that a group and just relentlessly pick on it, devalue it, uh, say, you know, you're worthless, it's your fault, it's your fault that you're not keeping up with everybody else. And that, that, that rhetoric has just become more and more and more entrenched and more so and more So the attachment poisonous. of blame removes the responsibility yeah. towards removes the social, remedying. The, 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 the social, social responsibility and the political responsibility. Just say a bit about um, the way in which that further is pathologised. So, for instance, your views on the early intervention um, type mm. schemes such as Kids Company and, mm. you know, um, and Camilla Batmanjali, in fact, was here two years ago in that chair, I should tell you. Um, so, but <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> just tell me about what your views are about that and the way in which, well, I don't want to give you the answer on that, but you tell me what you think about that kind of pathologising. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got to say, you know, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon about slagging off Kids Company. I always felt this way about Kids Company. Say a bit I, more I always about that. thought it was fantastically dodgy. Um, <laughs> well, basically, um, C Camilla Batmanjel managed to tap in to that sort of whole new Labour period of um, we're going to do something. We're going to do something for, and we're going to do something about the poorest people in society. We're gonna we are going to bring everybody in, and we've got this idea, we've got this idea that everybody, you know, can sort of partake in self-actualisation, you know, not in the sort of collective project of making society better, but everybody, everybody's an individual and everybody wants to live the dream, you know, and therefore, you know, everything is placed on the, the individual. Mm -hmm. We will just give you more sort of state help to be, you know, to be the individual you really want to be. And what's wrong thing. with that? Uh, it, it, it leads, it leads, and can lead to very severe pathological, you know, path, path, pathologisation. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And Camilla sort of stepped into that sort of not a vacuum, but a sort of this welcoming 
nexus in the, the new Labour government of, oh my God, we've got loads of money, we're going we're gonna to redistribute it, we're going to spend a load of money on the very poorest in society, but we're not going to tell the rest of society that we're doing that because everybody will say that we're soft, you know, that we're soft on people who are undeserving. We're still going to say there's loads of people who are undeserving, but what we're going to do on the quiet is just shift loads of money in that direction, but we're not going to be open about it. We're not saying we actually have to redistribute because it's good for society. They were actually trying to do a double think, basically, or a double message. And this all goes in with, with kids' company, the formation of kids' company, of course, is that it was basically a sort of quango. It wasn't a state. It wasn't an arm of the NHS. It wasn't an arm of social services. So somebody like Camilla B could come in and say, social services has failed, society has failed, you know, the, the police has failed. I am the only person who can save these, these terrible, deformed, brain-deformed children. Literally only me. And so she had, you know, obviously she had this big, you know, personality and the clothes and everything like that. And she would literally go, go to government departments and say, give me millions of pounds or I, you know, or, or I will die on the floor and everybody will kill each other. You know, and they said, oh, crumbs, yeah, you're right. Well, we actually, as it happens at the moment, we've got quite a lot of money. <laughs> Here, have some. And on this, on this basis, she manufactured just an extraordinarily sort of dangerous contrick of saying there are some children in society who, who are so failed that they're not even human anymore. I mean, look at their brains. Their brains are smaller. Isn't it, you know, isn't it terrible? They've gone all, they've gone all funny. And look, look at these black children in hoodies, bit menacing a white banker, which, which she actually had in, in tube adverts, adverts on the tube. Actually had, if, you know, basically the, the, the message underneath said, you know, oh, oh, you know, if it wasn't for kids' company, this, this, this white banker would be dead on the floor or, you know, something like, you know, to, worse than that effect. I just want to come um, up on the, on the pathologising, if that's right. right. Yeah, Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. So that, but the... On that, Helen, and this, this point that Lindsay's making, these re almost reductive views around what um, perhaps the central problems are, you, you said at the start about the cohort studies, on the one hand, really celebrated as a, a peak in you know, British science, but also they're just not heard about. Yeah? In the same way that I know if I go into work tomorrow and a new drug's been found that produces marginal gains, it will be all over um, the Daily Mail, mm. for instance, by Monday morning. W what's your view on that, particularly as a, an editor in Nature, which on the whole I will correlate with that kind of study, yeah. you know, something scientific and um, sexy, so to speak. What's your view on that divide and why it is we're not listening? Yeah, I mean, I, I did find that really interesting because my, my background is in uh, biomedical um, science and I'm comfortable in, in genetics and, and molecular biology and then in, in uh, and that's kind of what, what drew me to the cohort studies actually in the first place, but then in doing that, um, I had to become completely comfortable with social science and, and it was very interesting to see actually within these studies the uh, continuing tension uh, between and different languages that biomedical scientists and social scientists uh, speak, even though they can be working on, on the same um, studies. And I, I guess what you're um, encountering really is that it's, it's just a very tractable problem to identify a particular molecule which is associated with you know, high risk of heart disease and then look for a drug which you know, treat, uh, attacks that molecule 
Um, and also, obviously, there's profits which drive that because you can make money out of making that drug. Um, it's, it's a relatively simple and, and tractable problem which we can try and um, deal with. But when you talk about something like um, how early life circumstances or, or social class um, can increase your risk of heart disease 70 years down the line, which is what these cohorts show, that's a really complicated problem, um, which is very, very difficult to, to unpick across time and all the different, you know, obviously factors and confounding factors um, which, which emerge from that. So I think it's a bit really, go back to what Lindsay was saying, um, to we have to become comfortable with complexity. Mm. And often these studies, although they'll show us these very strong um, associations and sometimes they're they seem to be causative, it's very, very difficult to come up with a simple answer from that about how to deal with it, or if you do, it's very hard to implement, because as we said, you know, to make those type of changes in society is, is complicated and expensive.